Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, today I'm speaking with Megan Phelps Roper about a podcast series she's produced over at the Free Press, which is the media platform that Barry Weiss and Nellie Bowles and a few others have created. And really the purpose of this podcast is to bring your attention to it. It's a wonderful series titled The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And if you haven't heard about the controversy that has subsumed the life of J.K. Rowling, Megan and I will explain it. But suffice it to say, this is an episode of the podcast that will pitch me with both feet onto the topics of trans rights and trans activism and the way in which they collide with women's rights and free speech and other things we value. Given how combustible this subject is, I think I need to say a few things at the outset, some of which I say in my conversation with Megan. First, I have no doubt that gender dysphoria is a real phenomenon, which is to say that some people feel that they have been more or less born into the wrong body and are made powerfully unhappy by that discovery and want to transition to one or another degree in their gender identity and perhaps use hormone treatments and or surgeries to accomplish that, I have no doubt that in many cases this predicament is all too real, and in those cases, these medical interventions should be available to people. And I think it should go without saying that their political rights should be protected. So at least in my own mind, there's nothing that I think or feel or articulate in this podcast that I believe, is a symptom of transphobia, much less bigotry against trans people. The problem, however, is that believing these things and being morally and politically committed to them does not resolve all of the difficult questions. There are cases where the rights of trans people seem in direct opposition to the rights of women and girls. And acknowledging that fact is what has gotten J.K. Rowling into such hot water. What's more, there are troubling signs that the increase in gender dysphoria is not a matter of our simply discovering how many people in the world suffer this condition and have been closeted in the face of widespread intolerance. Rather, there's considerable evidence of social contagion, especially among teenage girls. So insofar as social contagion is an element here, that adds an additional reason to be circumspect before recommending irreversible medical interventions to teenagers. So all of this has to be talked about compassionately and reasonably, and even with the best of intentions, there are no guarantees that there won't be corner cases that entail real trade-offs, right? And J.K. Rowling's commentary on this topic has more or less lurched toward those. Now, as I say in this podcast, I take her side in a very direct way, far more directly than Megan does, and I don't want to mislead anyone about the series she's produced. It's far more balanced and judicious than the conversation I have with her here, at least my side of it. Because to my eye, J.K. Rowling has been attacked quite unfairly by people who have been made hysterical 
under the influence of a political cult. This is of a piece with what I think about wokeness generally, and there really is no better case in which to witness these excesses than the case of J.K. Rowling. Here's a clip from Megan's podcast. Can you talk to me about some of the threats that you've received over the past few years? There have been a lot, um, a huge amount, as every woman will know who speaks up on this issue, a huge amount of, I want her to choke on my fat trans dick. You know, like very sexualized abuse. Well, I don't think all of them mean it literally, but attempts to degrade, to humiliate, people might say, well, that's not really a threat. And you know what, up to a point, you're probably right, though it's very unpleasant to be on the receiving end of it, particularly in the quantities I've had it. Then I have had direct threats of violence. And I have had people coming to my house where my kids live, and I've had my address posted online. I've had uh, what the police anyway would regard as credible threats. Yeah. The pushback is often, you are wealthy, you can afford security you haven't been silenced. All true, right? All of that's true. But I think that misses the point. The attempt to intimidate and silence me is meant to serve as a warning to other women. And I say that because I have seen it used that way. I have seen other women and other women have told me, I literally had someone say this to me the other day. I was told, look, look what happened to JK Rowling. Watch yourself. The purpose of this episode and the purpose of Megan's series isn't to produce any final verdict on the ethical and political questions that this topic raises. It really is limited to carving out the space for a rational, compassionate conversation. And this is something that the activists on the far left and the far right have, until this moment, made impossible. So, for better or worse, I bring you Megan Phelps Roper and the Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. I am here with Megan Phelps Roper. Megan, thanks for joining me again. So excited to be here, Sam. Thank you. So uh, you have done this, uh, you've created this amazing podcast series, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And you've done this for the Free Press, which is Barry Weiss's um, uh, new uh, media property, which is uh, you know, I'm very uh, excited about. People can find out more about that at the FP dot com t-h-e-f-p dot com and this is a um i mean she has her own podcast honestly but you have created this podcast along with andy mills and uh i don't know if there's any, anyone else you need to credit there but um you're the, you're yeah. the woman on the mic uh and uh we'll, we're, we're going to talk about all of it so um who else uh do you have any, have any other collaborators here you need to acknowledge yeah yeah my friend matthew bull mm-hmm. he is yeah I, i'm just really I feel like I, I got really lucked out here working with two of, I think, the best in the podcasting business, Andy Mills and Matt Bull. Yeah, they're, they're really wonderful. And actually, I met Andy because of your, because of your show, because you know, when I did your show in, mm. back in 2015, he was working at Radiolab. And right. we like, really quickly bonded over our you know, shared history in, in you know, being raised in Christian, Christian fundamentalism. And Matt also shares that history. So it's, it's been an, you know, amazing to finally work with them on, on something that has a lot of parallels with our upbringing. And uh, Barry and Andy are both refugees from the New York Times. Is Matt also a, a New York Times refugee or not? 
no, actually, he he worked at Gimlet and then at Spotify. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, lots of lots of history in in podcasting and elite media spaces. Yeah, well, it really shows. This is a a highly produced series. I mean, it's completely unlike a, a podcast of the of the sort I produce. Uh, you have a ton of archival audio, which um, is fascinating. So it's just this very layered document, and uh, you are really the perfect person to have done this. I mean, you're, you know, your your voice is is fantastic, as I think some people recognize. You've not only been on this podcast before, but you are the voiceover actress for uh, the Essential series that Jay Shapiro produced on the basis of uh, my podcast archive, and so you're. Your voice is fantastic, but as we will remind people, you have this very unique background, which I think made you the perfect person to interview J.K. Rowling. It just, and I think she more or less acknowledges it in in the series. I mean, you can just see that she's really um, able to open up to you, given your background. So I, I think, but before we jump into the series itself, remind people how far you've come, because it is um, it is a surprising backstory. Yeah, so I grew up in the Westboro Baptist Church. You know, I was born and raised there. We started protesting when I was five years old, and I was a true believer. You know, I, I was surrounded by people, you know, a very loving, very involved family, highly educated, very logical, analytical people who were just absolutely persuaded that their understanding of the Bible was the one true understanding. And, and so we went around the country sharing this message of essentially you have to obey God or you will be cursed by God in this life and then spend hell in eternity. And the strength of our belief, our, our certainty in, in those beliefs led us to do all kinds of really horrible and to justify all kinds of really horrible, cruel things. I think maybe that some of the most extreme things that people are aware of is the protesting at funerals, Mm. funerals of AIDS victims, funerals of soldiers killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. And and then also, you know, praying for horrible things to happen to people. And we did this believing that what we were doing was, you know, in spreading the truth of God, this was this was the the exemplar of love. This is the very definition of of what it means to love other people. And so it obviously gave me uh, the understanding that people can do really horrible things with the very best of intentions. You can have all, you know, seem to have all of the tools that you would need to live a good life and still, because of the strength of, of your beliefs, end up doing really horrible things. Hmm. Well, so before we jump into the series, I, I think I'm just going to recommend that people pause this episode and subscribe to it so that they it's waiting for them in their podcast app after they're done listening to us. So they, they can find it under the title, The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. And uh, you've released six episodes at this point. How many mm-hmm. are in the series? There's seven in the main part of the series, but we will be back with an epilogue in about a month. Mm-hmm. And then we're, we're, we're weighing whether to release. I re- I, we recorded you know dozens of interviews at this point. And some of them, many of them were extremely moving and there just wasn't space for them in the series. Because as you say, like we are trying to cover an awful lot of ground in a really, relatively short amount of time. And so we're thinking about sharing some of those other interviews later for people who want mm-hmm. to go a little deeper into some of the, the things that we discuss in the show. 
How many hours of audio did you get with Roland? About nine.、Mm-hmm. Uh, over the course of, I took two trips to Scotland, and so we recorded with her over the course of four days. I have one、uh, editorial note or piece of advice for listeners. I think that episode two is probably going to be the least interesting to most people. This is where you get into the the history of the Christian backlash to.、Um, The Harry Potter series, which was I mean, it's fascinating for me, and it's a, a very interesting context to what's happening now. It's just, and it, and it is one of the ways in which you were so well qualified to be reaching out to Roland because you come from the Christian right and、uh, you you understand the kind of the other side of the the fanaticism that was aiming to cancel her. But、um, I think some number of people will bog down in episode two. So I just I want to admonish our listeners: if you listened to episode one and you love it, and you start to get antsy in episode two, do not abort the series. Just press on to episode three and four because I mean this is just it's a f- truly fascinating document. There's so much that is driving our culture fairly mad at this moment that is that can be seen you know through the lens of this. Topic and and you know measured by what has happened to Rowling you know personally. So let's turn to that now. Let's just talk about. Well, can I just、yeah. defend episode two? Yeah, for a second? yeah. No, I mean I don't. I, was, <laughs> I, I, I can just I tell totally, you. <laughs> I know. I don't、I'm、think. I, no, no. It, don't don't get me wrong. I I I, I loved it, <laughs> but I just I know that yeah, some、um, people. I know the experience of listening、understand. to three and four, and it's.、Mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to get off the ride before they hit three and four. Yeah, for sure. I, it's really funny because two, a lot of people think, you know, like like what you thought, like that 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 maybe we are on a digression here. And in fact, I, I think so many of the things that we hear about, you know, first of all, a lot of people just love that, you know, kind of refresher on the '90s.、Mm. It's really fun, I think, for a lot of us to go back、yeah. um, and remember some of those things, and you know, through the lens of the present, and and to realize that so many of the things that we see, you know, part of the culture war right now. Have their origins in the 1990s, and seeing the echoes of those things, I think is is really fascinating. And it was really interesting to go back and recognize that, like, the Christians. It's easy to look at the Christians in you know the late 90s and the early 2000s who were, as you say, trying to cancel J.K. Rowling, like part of this backlash where they are burning her books. You know, they become one of the most banned books according to the American Library Association, and so they're they're kind of a constant target. And you say, oh, these are just religious fanatics. But when you actually look at at the culture and what was happening at the time, it makes a lot more sense, and it's it's kind of trying to help us understand that you know we are still today we're doing the same thing. We we are human beings responding to the context and the society in which we are living, and to just to not look at people and recognize the context in which they are where they're having these reactions, it's short sighted. Yeah, yeah, and I mean you're talking to people who. Thought that witchcraft was real, right? I mean, they they want to cancel her because they believe in witchcraft and they think that the, her books somehow advocate for it. And you and you have you know the, the president of the, of the United States, George Bush, denying her some I forget which award it was, but they you know the White House didn't want J.K. Rowling to get some award because George Bush was concerned that that she was advocating witchcraft in her. In her books, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just incredible. But anyway, I, I stand by this admonishment because I, I I'm, I'm I, with you. I'm I've with seen you. <laughs> a few people kind of get bumped. Just I,、mm-hmm. I, I, I had to drag a few people to episode three after、yeah. they they got bogged down in episode two, and and you know one was a teenager, 
who um, you know, really did need to hear this whole series. Mm-hmm. So well, let's talk about what's happening to Rowling. I mean, how would you... Well, actually, just one question about the Christian piece of it. Do you remember what your reaction was to the Harry Potter series? I mean, is, mm-hmm. was it on your radar in, when you were in the Westboro Baptist Church? Yeah, definitely. And it's actually kind of, kind of funny because my family was not part of that backlash at all. You know, we, we targeted people for a lot of things, but my dad is the one who brought home the first Harry Potter book and insisted that I read it. He thought that I would love it. So he's an elder in the church. And, you know, we saw it. This is just fiction. And I remember thinking that the people who were upset about it were, you know, are they, are they dumb? Do they not understand what fiction is? So it was, it was really, this is actually one of the things that was so interesting to me when, when Andy Mills first called me about this, you know, a little over two years ago now. And he, he reminded me about that, that original, that Christian backlash to J.K. Rowling. And we got off the phone and I immediately started researching that and going back and, you know, looking at it, you know, with, with, with fresh eyes. And it was really, really fascinating, the language that they used. And, and anyway, sorry, I don't yeah. mean to digress too far, but, but we didn't participate in that at all. I, we were major fans, like my siblings, I'm the third of 11, and we passed those books around and discussed them endlessly. And I actually, you know, I, I included this in my letter to J.K. Rowling, the fact that I was standing on the picket line balancing these like massive books <laughs> because I was such a fan. I didn't want to, I didn't mm. want to quit reading. Amazing. So yeah, yeah. We, did, we didn't participate in that. Okay. So J.K. Rowling is, um, I think it's, it really is not, it's strange to say it, but it's, it is not an exaggeration to say, I mean, I think it is literally true to say that she's probably the most successful and most beloved author in my lifetime in the English language. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't know who could stand a chance of being in first position if it's not her. I mean, I, I can't think of any other author for whom, you know, bookstores need to open at midnight. So lines of hundreds of children, you know, on her pub date. And, you know, there are the- literally theme parks opened in celebration of her, her characters. I mean, it's just, you know, so mm-hmm. there, she's really one without a second as an author. So she was uniquely placed to weather the storm that has been directed at her. And I think it's, it's also safe to say that a lesser author, you know, even a, just a normal best-selling author, would have completely lost their career over what has happened to her. So the fact that she's still standing and is, you know, relatively unscathed, I mean, we'll get into the details of just what has happened to her personally and professionally. But, you know, it's, if anyone looks at her case and thinks, you know, you can draw the lesson that, you know, th- there is no such thing as being canceled because, look, she's still doing her thing. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know who else could have survived what's gone on with, with her professionally. And what it is, it's something like a, you know, we, we just had a, a you know, famous or a couple of famous runs on banks here in the U.S. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're recording now when the instability of our financial system is still everywhere in the news. And I, I do view this, you know, what's happened to her, uh, in particular on social media, as a kind of bank run on a person's reputation. You know, it, it, it achieves a certain contagious hysteria, and then it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling process where, because everyone is criticizing this person, because everyone is defecting, everyone is, you know, washing their hands of 
the person who's, who's come under the focus of the mob, it becomes harder and harder for anyone to defend him or her. It's just it becomes you know, reputationally too toxic to even be associated with the, the phenomenon. And it's a, you know, you're using the obvious analogy of, of a witch burning, but the speed and, and crown dynamics of it, it really does remind me of a, of a run on a bank. And, you know, this is, you know, she reputationally, she was a very big bank. I mean, I, I really think the biggest. And so she has, she is still solvent, but it really has been amazing to witness. And um, first, why did you want to make this series? And how would you describe what has happened to J.K. Rowling? So we wanted to make this series to investigate the, I mean, because obviously when you look at just her history, you know, she has been an absolute force in the culture for, you know, more than two decades at this point. And the world has changed so much during that time. So in Witch Trials, we are using her story as a way of exploring those changes. And, you know, we're investigating these two very vocal backlashes that she's faced you know, first from the Christian right, as we talked about, and then now from the, you know, progressive left who accuse her of transphobia. And it's really not about shaming or blaming people for being angry with her or vehemently disagreeing with her or, you know, condemning her. And it's not about proving that she's right. It's really about trying to understand where people on all sides of this conflict are coming from, you know, in a scrupulously good faith way. I mean, and I can just explain mm. just a little bit more. Like anybody who's followed this conversation at, at any depth, I would say, because at, at the very beginning I was watching, you know, I saw those tweets, you know, first in December of 2019 and then in, in June of 2020. When she started to weigh in on sex and gender, I had very little frame of reference for, for that conversation in general. And then, and just specifically like why it ignited such a firestorm. I'm reading her tweets and trying to understand why, you know, a, a criticism of using the phrase people who menstruate is causing people to respond that she, that J.K. Rowling is calling for the genocide of tran trans people. And so I just, I was coming from a place of, of relative ignorance. Like, I, I don't understand what's happening here and really wanting to understand. And I think her story just touches on so many, of, again, of these changes, like the changes in the internet over the past 20 years. You know, initially people saw it as this, you know, kind of maybe even a, you know, a path to some kind of utopia where, you know, we are connected with people all over the world. And this, you know, connection is inevitably going to be a very good thing. And it's going to give everyone a voice. And, and it's going to, you know, what it will do for democracy will be this incredibly positive thing. And we've seen that shift quite dramatically over the last decade and you know trying to understand how is it that now that it seems like you know the barrier to entry you know to to give everyone a voice like why is it that so many people are now self-censoring why is it that the most extreme positions are being conflated with you know sort of any kind of dissent on or or difference of opinion and so like it's trying to understand you know all of these dynamics like including like what social, what social media in general is doing to public discourse, you know, incentivizing extremes and amplifying some of our worst impulses and, and flattening context. And so, it, so there's, there's so many elements that we're trying to get at in this, you know, seven episode series. So obviously it's a lot of, a lot of ground to cover. 
Yeah, so let's just uh, remind people what has happened here, because I, I would, would assume more or less everyone knows the general shape of it, but how would you describe what kicked this off, or how did the controversy begin, and what is the logic of it? I guess I'll, I'll just set you up by saying that there's an interesting conflict between women's rights and trans rights, and, and there's also an, an interesting tension between trans rights and gay rights. And it's just you know, for, unless someone has spent a little time focused on this issue, you know, th- these are this might sound like surprising claims, but kind of the structure of the controversy is really framed by those underlying conflicts. I mean, there are just certain situations where you are opposing what, you know, most women, certainly most feminists, would consider a concern for protecting the rights of women with these new rights for members of the trans community, in particular, biological men who identify as trans or non-binary. I mean, we'll talk a lot about you know, trans and non-binary people here, as you do in the series. But really, the the issue with women's rights is not biological women or bi- and girls deciding to become non-binary or men. It's th- those who are moving in the opposite direction. You know, biological men who who now identify as as trans or non-binary. So, with that as set up, what happened with uh, J.K. Rowling? So in in, I think I'm going to start with the, like, there was this one tweet that she posted in December of 2019. Maybe that is the place to start. There were little things that happened before, but really the first time she publicly weighed in on the discussion around sex and gender came in December of 2019 with the case of a woman named Maya Forstatter. And this might feel like it's a little bit in the weeds, but it, it, is, it is ultimately the thing that causes her to decide to weigh in. And the short version of that case is that Maya Forstadter lost a contract that she, her employment contract was not renewed at this nonprofit because of public statements that she had made. And the statements that she made were in response to a proposed change in the law in the UK. And so she brought this case before what's called an employment tribunal in the UK to say, I am a citizen of a democracy. I should be able to say that biological sex is immutable and not be, not lose my employment over that. And so it was really, it was largely a free speech issue at that point. Because if it's really, and it wasn't just about Maya Forstadter, it was about the precedent that that set, that anybody in the UK, if they will state that opinion, that biological sex is immutable, and then they, they, they would have to risk losing their job if they were going to express that opinion. And that, that seemed unconscionable, I think, to J.K. Rowling. And so she weighed in and she posted this, I think, what a lot of people, even people who initially, they, a lot of people initially read it as, you know, support, unequivocal support for trans rights. She, do you want me to read the tweet? Sure. She said, dress however you please, call yourself whatever you like, Sleep with any consenting adult who will have you. Live your best life in peace and security. But force women out of their jobs for stating that sex is real. Hashtag I stand with Maya. Hashtag this is not a drill. And so what, what she's saying there is she's trying to say, I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with trans people. We should still be able to express these beliefs. 
that us, you know, there there are people who think that to have any concerns about this, you know, as you put it, this this conflict between or potential conflicts between the rights of women and the rights of specifically, it's it's almost like like also like you said, it's almost always trans women, the rights of natal women and the rights of trans women, like that that is seen as in and of itself transphobic by a lot of a lot of people on the left. Yeah, so it, it it was a free speech concern as well, and she was um, reacting, as many people have, to this uh, fairly Orwellian denigration of our language, right? When, you know, rather than refer to women, you know, even in the context of, of scientific journals now, you see these tortured phrases, and I think the one she reacted to on Twitter at one point was, people who menstruate. Right, and she said, "You mm-hmm. know, I, I, didn't we used to have a word for that? You know, was I um, mm-hmm. help me here? Is it? Yeah, and she Wombin, so she would, yeah. Right, so she was uh, obviously people could have viewed that as snide, but and she said she said it was flippant. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, there's so many people are at their are at the end of their patience with this fixation on language, which I mean, there, there is something, you know, I I view it as not only wrongheaded, but Sinister to sort of rule out certain kinds of thought. I mean, it is—it's the very essence of what you know, what we mean by Orwellian, right? I mean, you know, Orwell has earned this uh, place in our language, not only because of his novel 1984, but because of his quite famous and deservedly so essay, Politics and the English Language. Uh, I mean, it's just it, this is a tactic for making it hard to. Think about, much less say, certain things. I mean, you, you, if you seize control of the words we use to name things, and it has been so programmatic and clumsy coming from the left of late, and yet it's been so successful. I mean, the the style guide for the Associated Press, and you have, you've got places like Stanford University coming out and and. Offering lists of forbidden terms, right? And, and and this is now far beyond the the trans issue, but this goes to race and many of these other variables. This is not the way we make cultural progress. Anyway, her, her reaction yeah. as a writer to that is completely understandable. But what she then came to focus on more than anything, it seems, is the rights of women to have protected spaces like you know domestic abuse shelters and changing rooms and bathrooms. And I mean, if I'm not mistaken, that's where things really heated up, and where she where she expressed most of her concerns with respect to the trade-offs between protecting the rights of vulnerable girls and women and the rights of trans women. Yeah, I mean, I just want to go back just for a second on the language thing because mm-hmm. obviously it's important to we understand that the people who are advocating for these changes in language are really trying to make it more inclusive like they they are coming at it from very good intentions they want things the world to be better and for you know racism and sexism and transphobia for all of these things to you know to and and using language to to accomplish these you know positive aims in society but also as you just said you know one of the reporters that I that I spoke with Michelle Goldberg you know she you know she's covered this topic for a long time and she told me that and I thought this was very well put. She said that the seeds of the backlash are contained within the effort to suppress questions and dissent and to this effort to kind of force a consensus, 
when it hasn't been reached organically through conversation and persuasion, which is how pluralistic societies function. And so this kind of top-down imposition of these changes in language, which a lot of people, I mean, myself included, I, I didn't have any sense of, any real sense of, of like, what, what is, why not, essentially? Like, why not do this? And, you know, you hear one of the, one of the main issues is, as you just said, it is, makes it difficult. It can be very difficult to talk about specifically the biological differences between males and females and between natal women and trans women. Like all, it seems like all of the language has been, has become politicized in some way. Like, so the choice to use one word over another. And so it's, it's been a huge issue in this series trying to talk about all of these things in a way that a we the the term we keep using is a normie listener right somebody who Mm. is not the uninitiated essentially into this conversation and it's you know not in an effort to you know denigrate trans people or to choose one side or another and and to be respectful of everybody involved but it is extremely hard to walk that line and it is not not because we again not because we don't respect everyone but because it's so much of the language has become politicized in that way. And I think one of the things as well is, is just this, the question of, are there times, like it's, it's essentially, are there times when biological sex is implicated in a way that makes it more important or, you know, more, more I don't know if that's the best way to put it, uh, that it's more important than gender. And, you know, because essentially like that is, that is the, I think one of the, one of the biggest changes that is being advocated for. So when we talk about, you know, men and women, we are talking about gender identity rather than sex. But, and I feel like, I feel like I'm going to go, go mm. down a rabbit hole here a little bit. I, so maybe I shouldn't, but it's, there is no consensus on the language. Like to my mind, we, one obvious, you know, way of splitting the difference is like to, when you talk about men and women, that that is referring to gender identity. And when you talk about males and females, that's talking about biological sex. That seems to make sense to me, but there is no consensus on that. So, for instance, even in the New York Times, you'll you'll read, you know, trans female or trans male, and they don't mean a person. It's just very, very hard to parse. Is, is all mm. I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one thing to acknowledge is that your series is not just a straightforward defense of rolling, right? I mean, your your series is more balanced. Then I will sound in this conversation. I mean, I just take Rowling's side in this in a very straightforward way. I think she's been uh, maligned as a transphobe and a bigot, and you know, from what I can tell, she's none of those things. And she, you know, what's more, it's you know, I, I, mean, I, I acknowledge that many of the people, even most of the people who are attacking her, are doing it from a place of you know, as you say, they're. It's their version of compassion, right? They think they are are mitigating human suffering, and they think Roland is increasing it, wh- whether by intention or not. And uh, I'm uh, fairly sure they're wrong about that. But it's I do view many other people in this space to be bad actors of a different sort, or at least um, you know more conflicted than than just attempting to do something good, but going about it in the, in the wrong way. I mean, I, you know, so to say that everyone has good intentions, I think is it's a bit of a stretch for me. I, I, th- I frankly think there, there's a fair degree of, of mental instability and, and even frank mental illness in 
the activist community. I mean, in, in, in really in all activist communities, but I would say in particular this one from what I can see. I mean, it's just the level of viciousness and hysteria is, um, you know, it's, it's hard to know what to compare it to. And it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why I have avoided, you know, I'm, I've been among the people who've more or less avoided this issue because it's just not worth it, right? It's just, wh- why do you want this experience that J.K. Rowling is having? And Yeah, um, I mean, it's that, that dynamic that you're describing, though, it's, it's, it's what's really fascinated me was that, so before I ever wrote the letter to J.K. Rowling asking if she would do this, before I'd even decided to do it, I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of people and a lot of people specifically in the LGBT community and then specifically a lot of trans people. And it was wild to me to realize that most people from as far as I can tell do not hold those extreme positions that you see in a lot of activist communities, specifically on Twitter. And like realizing how much more it's much more reasonable. Like the yeah. the the sense of it is like and even the idea, you know, the, the importance of having the conversation. Like, I talked to many trans people who were like, we believe that the lack of a conversation here is harming our interests far more than people like J.K. Rowling and, and many who even agreed with her and they understood her concerns and, and shared them. And sort of like the need to have the conversation to navigate, you know, what is fair, for instance, in, in women's sports. What is, you know, how do we navigate, you know, single sex spaces and, you know, women's prisons and, you know, childhood transition, all of these things that J.K. Rowling has expressed concerns about, those, many of those concerns are shared by people, by, by other, many other trans people. Yeah. It's just that, like, the, the effort to suppress the conversation, I think it comes from, I think it's, it's, a, it's largely a fear-based response. Like, there are a lot of people who are genuinely anti-trans. There are a lot of there's you know violence against them threats of violence all of the laws that are being passed targeting you know the the trans community and even when they're not passed actually just feeling like you are the constant target of of people with power it kind of i think that's par- partly what's driving this you know kind of the extreme nature of this conversation but talking to so many other people it, it made me realize like there is actually a lot of space for it but it doesn't seem that way because of this very distorting effects of of places like Twitter, yeah, and you've found some uh, you know, reasonable people who are quite critical of Rowling too. I mean, so like I, I'm recalling uh, the trans woman Natalie Wynn, otherwise known as ContraPoints on YouTube, and I, I was when I was on Patreon, I used to support her channel, although I, I sort of lost touch with it in recent years. So I, it was nice to hear her again. I mean, she's very critical of Rowling, but she's, um, you, know, you know, I don't know how much you spoke to her, but in terms of what made it into your podcast, you know, she seems quite reasonable. So I wouldn't put her on the far mm-hmm. fringe of this activist culture that is, is showing these kind of cult-like and, you know, puritanical traits. There's, it has all the, I mean, this is why the, you know, the witch-burning analogy is so appropriate. I mean, this is, it really has a cult-like hysteria about it where there's there's the scapegoating of heretics, there are blasphemy tests, there's just, you know, there, no one is far left enough to be immune to being, you know, castigated 
by the mob if they make one wrong move. Maybe so Natalie Wynn herself was attacked by the trans community for not aligning with every one of its points of piety. It's somewhat mysterious that it has achieved this level of cultural influence given how fringe a phenomenon this is, right? I mean, this is the, the very essence of a fringe issue, you know, whatever its actual political and, and ethical importance. I'm not uh, disputing that this is something worth paying attention to and that the rights of trans people are worth safeguarding, etc. But how has this become the 20 megaton issue, which again is sort of under the radar for, uh, you get the sense that it's under the radar for much of the culture. It's like it, it almost requires that one be too online to know every you know, permutation of what we're talking about here. And yet, in terms of its actual influence at you know, Fortune 500 companies and our universities and our science journals and every, every media company, I mean, it's just, it, it has a truly an overwhelming influence now at HR departments everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I think it's really interesting. It obviously comes, from, I, I should say obviously, but from my sense, you know, people, it was very, it seemed very clearly, and it, I was one of these people to whom it seemed very clear that, that trans rights, this was the next frontier, right, in the, you know, LGBT activism. You know, same-sex marriage was decided, you know, that the, 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 the right in this country to same-sex marriage in, you know, 2015 came down from the U.S. Supreme Court. And so this battle was won in a very real and important way. And trans rights was the next frontier. And it's, it was not obvious to, I think, to a lot of people that there could be any, a lot of people compare the trans rights movement to the, you know, the gay rights movement, and they see any resistance to trans rights as it must necessarily be the result of bigotry. And you, you hear Natalie Wynn in episode six, you know, describing this dynamic where, you know, George W. Bush, when he was uh, you know, describing why he was against same-sex marriage, you know, it's about defending marriage. Like we, we have to defend, and so likewise with trans rights, we have to defend women's spaces. Women are at risk if we if we don't defend these things. So, so I think it it comes from this desire to protect this you know vulnerable minority, which again is a very good instinct. It's obviously also part of our social na- social nature. You know, we want to be part of a group and. There's this appeal and the desire of, you know, to be righteous. And yeah, it's like all of this stuff, like we talk about this in episode three, how, you know, none of these ideas originated on Tumblr, but we had four different people, two internet historians, Catherine D and Angela Nagel, as well as Helen Lewis, who is a reporter at The Atlantic, and then also mm-hmm. Natalie Wynn herself. These people who spent a lot of time on Tumblr and, and saw how they migrated from Tumblr to Twitter, where every, you know, as Natalie put it, like basically every journalist in the world, many of them are, are on Twitter and really caught fire there. So it's no longer, it's like, you know, we're having this, this conversation on the you know, biggest public platform where many powerful people, and I don't want to say it's not the right word exactly. I actually, let me pause for a second because it's, I was about to say infiltrate and that sounds really, mm-hmm. it's, that's not what I mean, but they really caught fire in these institutions that had and have a lot of power. Yeah, that was a piece of internet history that I was completely unaware of, and it was fascinating. I had no idea that Tumblr was the 
crucible in, in which all of these woke terms got uh, annealed and uh, refined and made and popularized. made ready for export to the rest of culture and then so you know microaggressions and and uh, all Safe the rest spaces, trigger yeah, warnings yeah all of it got sent into twitter where every journalist and politician was just waiting to have their their brains addled by this new orthodoxy before we go further i mean, I, I think you know it should go without saying but the truth is saying it is completely meaningless for the people who are most activated by this ideology. You know, I, I, I'm completely convinced that the trans phenomenon is real, which is to say that, you know, gender dysphoria is real, and we absolutely want to protect the rights of, of people in that situation uh, at whatever stage of life. And, you know, it, and I'm completely convinced that in certain cases, Medical transition is the most compassionate and rational thing for a, a person to to do. You know, there's nothing about what I'm saying here, or my, or explicitly or implicitly, that should be considered a denial of that fact, right? So that I, mean, I just think we we should have an ethical and political commitment to protecting the the the, the rights of everybody, and Absolutely. we should acknowledge that. This is a real phenomenon, which would, you know, like homosexuality or you know other aspects of human difference and uh, human variation. That you know we should just acknowledge and and find some way of incorporating into a a tolerant society. And so that, I mean, that's I, I certainly don't doubt that J.K. Rowling is also committed to that. And it's fairly obvious when you hear her speak at length that she is. But the question is, wh- how do we navigate these these odd collisions that seem to be zero-sum, at least in certain cases, between the rights of one beleaguered community and the rights of another. And And Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, it it was really interesting to me to, as I was speaking with many trans people, to realize, and I mentioned this earlier, that, that they share, many of them share the same concerns that Rowling does. So, I mean, you hear in episode six, Natalie talks about women's sports you know, she has this question herself, like, where, what is the line? Where is the, and, and it's like the, the idea of simply denying that there is, there is any conflict or that, that there there is a battle worth fighting here and calling people bigots for having those concerns. I think, I think those tactics are, are understandable. And I, I think I understand after, after all these conversations where they're coming from, but I, I don't think that suppressing the conversation is the way forward because we've seen, you know, a, 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 I would say a, a major backlash to trans rights, partly in response to the tactics that some activists have used. Yeah, yeah. And, and also in response to this corruption of language, which um, is fairly crazy making. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, when I look at the people who I've fallen out with you know, over political issues in recent years, I mean, the, the people who got captured by the right and by Trumpism, and and these people who, frankly, have clearly lost their ethical compass in that they're now unable to pay attention to anything other than the problem of, you know, wokeness, for lack of a better term. The reason is, it is things like, I think there's a, in, in one of your episodes, there, there's a, a headline that uh, J.K. Rowling refers to, which was, I believe, woman convicted of exposing her penis. Mm-hmm. The, the fact that we're 
I mean, it really, it really just seems like a, the gaslighting of a whole society, right? It's just, if we're going to insist that a biological male who's done absolutely nothing to transition is a woman simply because he calls himself a woman, right? For the purposes of going into a prison, you know, or, or for the purposes of going into a, a woman's changing room. And we're not going to dignify the concerns of women and girls who are placed in, into that situation as anything other than, you know, their own closed-mindedness and their own bigotry, right? It's like, it, it's just, this is going to drive people crazy for obvious reasons. And it's going to make them single-issue voters for obvious reasons. Just as a, a purely, I mean, whatever you think the, the underlying ethics are, purely as a ma- matter of you know, practical politics, it's just disastrously stupid to be insisting that we use language in this way. So yeah, I mean, I, I just know people who I literally can't have relationships with anymore because they've been driven so crazy by this kind of issue. And... Uh, it's understandable. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not, you know, sharing their, their monomania happily, but this is a place where it's pretty clear we need to hold the line. And if we can no longer use the term woman or girl in any straightforward way, if we have, you know, if we have people insisting that you can't put a baby's biological sex on its birth certificate because that could be, you know, misgendering them, uh, and that we need to be open-minded as to whether we've had a boy or a girl until the this child's you know seventh birthday or whenever it is that they can be counted upon to know what sex they are. I mean, this is just just as an opportunity cost for a society. The fact that any time is being spent getting tied in those particular knots is going to drive people crazy. For I think for obvious reasons. Well, I think it's the again it's it's back to is there is there a time like. And and if so, when are they that biological sex is more important or should take precedence over gender? And I think that those those lines, I mean, it depends on the situation, yeah. right? In some instances, it, it does. It would be fine, I think. I, I, and I don't. I, I should say a big part of the series, as you say, like it, it is not a defense of J.K. Rowling. It is an attempt to kind of lay out what has happened so that people can have the conversation. We see this as the start of a conversation. We're not trying to litigate all of the issues because that that's not our job. I think it's trying to set it up so that other people can have these conversations because the lines don't have to be, I think, so black and white. It doesn't it does appear in some in some cases, I think you're right, that maybe it is zero sum and decisions have to be made. But there's actually far more, I think, space for conversation. Like there are some sports where, you know, sex doesn't matter as much. And in fact, I listened in on an interview with Diana Nyad, where she, um, who's a, uh, oh God, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to gloss this incorrectly. Mm-hmm. She swam from Cuba to the coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of very long distance swimming. And she said, you know, essentially the, the biological differences between males and females, you know, kind of disappear at a certain length. And so all I'm saying is that there, there are lines that can be drawn, things that can be done to accommodate. You know, one of the things about sports could be, you know, you have a, instead of men and women, it's females and then an open category. So anybody can, Hmm. so it's it's something that doesn't, you know, misgender people. Like, I I don't know what the right answers are in all of these things, but they're conversations that, that need to happen. And that I think, I think there is space for them. One of the things that, that was very compelling to me and that, that made me feel like I should pursue this project was 
the realization that many gay people are kind of despairing mm -hmm. about the fact that for a long time they were getting this this criticism from the right, this shaming, kind of endless shaming and being targeted by the right for their sexual orientation because they are same-sex attracted. And there are, I don't want to say it's not all activists and it's not all trans people at all, but there is a certain strain of activism that, you know, accuses gay people of being genital fetishists, for instance, if they are same-sex attracted rather than same-gender attracted. And, you know, talking to these gay people who feel despairing about the fact that, you know, they spent decades fighting the right over their, over their right to be, you know, proud in public who they are. And now it's coming from the left, people that they, they saw as allies. And, and so it's, it's, there, there is a lot of, it's not just women whose rights, who feel that their rights are, are at stake. And you can really go down a lot of rabbit holes, like all of the, Think about just all of the places in society where sex matters. And it's these like very fundamental things, sex and dating and parenthood. And obviously, you know, the medical field, like this, this was another one of the places where the idea of obscuring biological sex can have real implications. And, you know, one of the, one of the you know, just simple examples that comes up is the case of a trans man who was pregnant and unaware of the fact that he was pregnant and because of the way he presented and because of the fact that I think it was the, the chart said that this trans man was male, they were functioning as if they were dealing with a male and did not consider pregnancy. And the child, the fetus, died, was lost. And so there are places where, where biology really matters. And so it's, 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 again, trying to find ways to navigate these things in a way that, that accommodates the rights of trans people without doing unnecessary harm or, or making these changes in a way that doesn't take into account what their implications are. Mm. Yeah, well, the, the threat of doing unnecessary harm is also at the bottom of this, right? I mean, that, that really is the, or I should say, the risk of doing unnecessary harm. Because it's, uh, and this is something that you talk about with Rowling at, at some length, because one of the, the aspects of this problem socially is that People who are gender dysphoric are, are discovering this uh, rather often in childhood, before puberty, and uh, or in or during puberty, and th therefore we're faced with the decision uh, that one could wonder whether a child can truly consent to to intervene medically to allow them to transition to whatever degree, whether they're they're trans or non-binary, and so you there's the um, this larger concern that um, you know many of the people who identify as trans or non-binary as children may in fact eventually grow out of it and, and just recognize that they were gay, you know, and, and therefore there's the specter of many people regretting whatever transitioning they accomplished biologically by you know by taking puberty blockers or taking hormones of that would help them transition, and to say nothing of surgery, and then. There's the the concern that this is to some significant degree a matter of social contagion, right? Which is because the growth in the numbers of trans and non-binary teenagers has been extraordinary. I mean, I, th I think it's is in some contexts it's like a fifty-fold change in the in the rate at which kids are showing up at clinics claiming to be gender dysphoric, and and um, you know I think 
most people could be forgiven for feeling that this just this is very unlikely to be a story of our now discovering the true ambient level of gender dysphoria that has always been hiding in our community now that the taboo has been lifted. There, it really does have many of the hallmarks of social contagion, especially when you're talking about girls claiming to be uh, gender dysphoric and um, uh, now identifying as boys or as non-binary. And yeah, there, I mean, there, yeah, there'd be no problem yeah. with any of this, but except for the fact that the stakes are so high once you start talking about medical intervention in childhood. And uh, I mean, if it's just a fad and people are going to grow out of it and it's a matter of, you know, what color you dye your hair, well, then no one should care. But the fact that we're talking about teenagers getting mastectomies uh, or even puberty blockers that make permanent changes to their physiology it's obvious why people would be worried about this, and it's not. And, and to perceive all of that concern as pure bigotry and intolerance and hatred of the other, right? That's just, it's just not at all accurate, right? To characterize it that way. And so, like, if we're going to have a society-wide discussion about what to do here, that's wise and compassionate, uh, it has to, at minimum, acknowledge that you're not insane to be worried. About whether or not a a 13-year-old can make a decision about these matters that they're not going to regret. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the, you know, major complicating factors here is that the use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones in young people is quite new. I talked to Mar- Dr. Marcy Bowers, who's the head of WPATH, the uh, World World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which is the, you know, only, I think, med- medical body in the world professional association in the world that is dedicated to trans health. And she cited this figure that in the last 10 years, 80% of the research in youth transition, youth medical transition has been done. So it's very new. And the thing is, if you have a young person who is transgender, who, will ha- who has persistent gender dysphoria and who will throughout their life, they are a transgender person, those interventions, those early interventions can have a major impact on their quality of life, not just while they're young, but also it will, it, they won't have to go through all of these, you know, these changes that they will then later have to reverse. They are more likely to be able to pass, which makes them you know, able to fit into society more. They can, so they can have these profoundly positive effects. Yeah. And so I think some of the people who, for instance, are outraged over some of the laws that are completely banning gender-affirming care and make no allowance for the fact that those young people need that care. I totally understand where they're coming from. And then on the other side, you know, as you say, th- there has been this explosion in the number of young people who identify as transgender. And because these treatments are so new, because there are, you know, we have a real lack of authoritative studies, long-term studies on the outcome of that care, it is very risky. It is experimental to be specific, that, that is what is happening in a lot of, I think it's happened in uh, Finland, it recently happened in Norway, it's happened in the UK, where they are kind of pulling back from some of these, what's called the affirmative model, mm. where you are affirming young people in their gender transition. It's not, it's not that you are denying them, it is that you are trying to, I think, you know, d- not just, as Natalie Wynn put it, you know, throw every teenager who is gender nonconforming into the transition pipeline you know, that's, nobody wants that. And it's just a matter of, again, finding that line 
And one of the main reasons we wanted to do this series is to open up that conversation so that it's it's not just, you know, one side. It's like there's this feedback cycle where they are, each side is pushing the other to these extremes and incapable of sitting down to have the conversation because they feel like the stakes are so high and that to even have the conversation, to give an inch, in other words, is going to lead to some horrifying outcome one way or the other that is intolerable to one side or the other. Yeah, and it's natural to worry about that given the way the extremes in this conversation have attacked everyone who's tried to find some a sane path through it, right? I mean, that's why it's been just so worth avoiding for most people. And, you know, you know mm-hmm. frankly, I'm speaking about myself here. It's just, you know, I, you know, I, you know, I don't know what um, is going to come of our releasing this podcast conversation because this is, you know, I have not spoken about this at any length before because I've perceived it to just be too much of a headache, right? And, mm-hmm. I've, and, I, and I've touched a lot of Controversial topics, as you know, it's mm-hmm. just, but th- this one's just, you know, I, I just see no advantage in doing it, really. I saw no advantage until I listened to your series, right? I mean, your series navigates this terrain uh, really beautifully. And in truth, much better than, than we have here, because here I'm, I'm much more in the mode of just simply defending rolling, right? And you have, you've brought in so many other voices. That it it really you know it, it's a balanced conversation and it's uh, yeah we're we're really not like I said we're, it's like I am not qualified to litigate all of these issues that's not it it wasn't my role in all of this it was really leaning on the things that we've talked about in in our previous conversations my entire life was transformed by real good faith conversation. Hmm. And it has been really devastating to me over the past, you know, t- it's been a little over 10 years now since I left Westboro to watch the public conversation, you know, go from specifically I'm thinking about, you know, public discourse. My one of the things that I included in my letter to JK Rowling was this line from Marilyn Robinson. I probably quoted it here before too, about how the language of public life has lost the character of generosity. And that's a really mild, understated way of putting it now. Because as you say, the backlash to many different kinds, like people are self-censoring at huge rates, is what I believe. And I think that there's a lot of evidence to, to show that. Because the consequences of speaking up have become so high. And we all lose when that is the case. Because when we have smart, intelligent, well-intentioned, kind, good people standing back while extremists take the mic, we all lose. And it, it just, again, leads to this feedback cycle of the extremes yelling at one another from, from opposite sides. And all of these you know, people in, who, are, who are not the extreme, who ha- are, have much more reasonable positions yeah, it, it, again, we we all lose. We all become. This is you know, John Haidt talks about this. Like we 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 become stupid as a the institutions lose their you know the the value of these institutions are are lost because we are incapable of of tapping into the wisdom of people who are afraid to weigh in because they are afraid of what's going to happen to them if they do. Hmm. Is J.K. Rowling still active on Twitter? She is, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Because so I left Twitter, as I think you probably know, mm-hmm. just because I've just found it, you know, in the end, too 
toxic. Mm-hmm. It was not worth giving it any attention. Ultimately, I was, it was just making me a worse person in the end because I, I just felt like I was seeing the worst of people. I, I, mean, I was seeing a lot of bad people, and I was seeing a lot of good people who were incentivized to behave like sociopaths. And so those people mm-hmm. were becoming indistinguishable to me. And I just worried that it was turning me, however much I tried to correct for it, it was turning me into a misanthrope of sorts. I mean, it just was, it was just continually advertising to me the lunacy and dishonesty of people by the mm-hmm. tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. And I can only imagine Rowling has had a an even worse experience, although I, I'm not sure she ever really engaged Twitter in quite the way I, I attempted to do as a, as a two-way medium of yeah, conversation. Yeah, she does. She does. And I mean, it, that actually, the fact that all of that conversation, I think, from her came from Twitter, that was yeah. another reason I wrote her that letter, because it's not Twitter and social media and the discourse that happens there. I mean, I'll, I'll just say, when we tweeted, you know, announcing that this you know, we were launching launching this series last month. J.K. Rowling mentioned me on Twitter, and it immediately became unusable to me. Like, it was right. just, it wasn't people responding to the tweet. It was people, some of them were, a few, but a lot of it was just immediately, they're just fighting over everything. They're fighting over, you know, just abusing each other. Like, again, the, the worst language, the assumption, constant assumption of bad intentions and bad faith. And it was so... It was such a mess. And I think, you know, she, I really, coming from Westboro, like knowing that even people like members of Westboro Baptist Church who appear to most people as just evil, delusional, like obviously bad faith, bad intentioned. And I, of course, I I know that that's not true, that they really were and are trying to do what they believe is right. You know, how much more J.K. Rowling, who wrote these books that became a kind of moral foundation for people. The idea that she had just suddenly slipped over into bigotry and, you know, was this unconscionable, just a horrible person who's this whole time has been like hiding her bigotry. It just didn't add up to me. And so trying to, I mean, I was, I'm very grateful that she was willing to have those conversations with me because, you know, outside of, outside of Twitter and outside of this kind of, you know, as she puts it in episode seven, this kind of mob on mob dynamic. And I think I was prepared for a lot of backlash for, you know, us making this series. But, and while there has, of course, been some, I have received way more, way more messages of support, like by far people who are so grateful to see the conversation being had in a, in a good faith way. Even people who don't agree with her, like to understand where she's coming from. You know, at, at the top of episode four, we, we go through kind of the history of feminism in Rowling's lifetime. Mm-hmm. and. And how, you know, her being shaped by, I mean, like, think about Title IX was, which is not, this is not about rolling, this is in the American context. Title IX is, you know, 50 years old. The gains in women's rights that have happened in Rowling's lifetime, you can, you can understand, even if you don't agree with her conclusions, why she is doing this, why she has picked up the mantle of women's and girls' rights and, and the idea that they need to be defended. It makes a lot more sense. It also makes a lot more sense when you listen to episode one and hear about her history of being a, a survivor of domestic violence and, mm-hmm. and sexual assault. And it just, the whole series is about perspective taking. We do it in episode two with those Christians. Who are these people? What are their experiences? What are their values? What are they coming to this to? 
all of those things are lost on social media. They're, yeah. And if they're not lost, they are obscured in this way that makes it very, very hard for people to have a meeting of the minds in any real productive way. And so that's what we were trying to address here. Yeah. I mean, that's why I worry that so much of this really is the result of the platforms themselves. I mean, the, 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 the medium really is the message. And in this case, Twitter really is misleading people about other people. It's a funhouse mirror or several funhouse mirrors that is systematically presenting the most grotesque face of one's opponents is truly misleading. I mean, not, not, again, not in every case. I'm sure there are some real psychopaths mm -hmm. out there, and I'm, I'm sure I've met a few of them on Twitter. But there are perfectly normal people who think they're committed to good things who are, in fact, behaving like psychopaths on Twitter because they're massively incentivized to behave that way. It's, it's really interesting. You use, that fun, I mean, you use the funhouse mirror analogy, and that's actually the one that I, throughout all of these interviews that I've done for this show, realizing, I mean, that's, that's exactly the analogy that I came to. And I came to realize that it, it reminds me very much of, of the dynamic with Westboro and the media. So we were responding to the 24-hour news cycle. Like my grandfather recognized that if we have this like very incendiary message, the fact that we were only 70 or 80 people, mm. it didn't matter because the message was so extreme and provocative that it got a massive amount of attention. So people are still quite uh, surprised to learn that Westboro is this tiny church in the middle of the country, like, you know, traveling around and or threatening to travel somewhere and just getting a ton of media attention. And you see that same thing is happening on, on social media. I don't actually think that nearly that many people hold these extreme positions. But yeah. they are the ones that get promoted and they are the ones that people respond to instinctively because it's like, we can't, we, you know, these people exist, like we have to fight them. Like we, we have to beat this back. And so it's, it's, it's very distorting. All of this is very distorting. And it's, it's, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if you have, <laughs> do you, I don't know if you have an answer. I think well, there, yeah, there's I, a I hopelessness. Do have an I mean, honestly, my, my answer <laughs> personally was getting off Twitter. I mean, I, I just can't yeah. tell you how much my sense of the world and of my place in it has changed. I mean, I really, I feel like I have woken up from a, a, a hallucination that lasted for you know, something like 12 years. It was just a, incredibly distorting of my sense of what the world is mm -hmm. and what other people are like and, what, and, and where I exist in relation to all of that. I mean, it's just, it, it's, very, it's very strange to have, you know, I, I, I'm kind of embarrassed that it was this big a deal, right? Like, I, you know, I thought I was just going to delete my account and move on with my life and there'd be not much to say about it. And, and yet, I mean, it, getting off of Twitter is one of the biggest things I've done in years. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. an enormous change in my life. Well, the, the thing that I loved about it for a long time, I mean, and still do, is that I could say something publicly without having to go through the lens of a journalist. And I yeah, think that yeah. is partly what, what J.K. Rowling is doing as well. I mean, she has reasons, I think, to just, many people have many reasons to distrust journalists. and. You know, there's been a, a lot of conversation 
over the past several years, specifically about you know ideological capture and and things like that. So I totally understand where where that is coming from too. And so this is you know maybe we just all need to make a podcast like this or something. I don't, I don't know, but well, well but the I, the irony is the the ideological capture of our institutions, mm-hmm. in particular the media, is almost entirely, at least in my view, driven by Twitter. Twitter, you know, as Barry has pointed out at one point, Twitter effectively became the editorial board of the New York Times, right? It was everyone mm-hmm. was so worried about what was going to happen on Twitter uh, mm-hmm. that they began to self-edit and they would write articles in response to tweets. And it became the centrifuge for the distillation of orthodox opinion. And Twitter was the place where activists got to put their fingers on the machine. It gave outside influence, it gives outside influence to maniacs and and liars and so and they don't have and the, the amazing thing is that there don't have to be that many of them to distort mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. and so yeah i just found that you know i'm agnostic as to whether or not we could build a social media platform that would be good for us and good for the world but mm-hmm. it's pretty obvious twitter isn't it and um mm-hmm. yeah it's uh yeah, and, it- and yet you are the you are the poster girl for the you know life-saving Mm-hmm. properties of this platform. I mean, you at Twitter, mm-hmm. we can remind people, but Twitter is the thing that got you out of your Christian cult mm-hmm. and found you a husband and, and a new life and, mm-hmm. and all of it. So it's really, I, I realize I'm talking to the yeah. to the, the Twitter girl here. But, but um, I, I love, I mean, I, I, I was a great, and I don't want to say that I, I, it's not that I hate Twitter now, although it's definitely, I think, a, a worse place. One of the things that made Twitter a good place for me was that I was used to all of the toxicity. All of that was, you know, happened in my real life, you know, almost every day on the picket line. Mm. So I was used to the toxicity, but what it gave me was time and space to build rapport with people and 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 for persuasion, for conversation and persuasion to happen. And I think a lot of people there is this kind of sense of hopelessness on Twitter. It ha- it's it's in politics generally, I think, in in a lot of politics, but specifically on Twitter, that sense of hopelessness, the idea that, you know, other people can't be reached. Mm-hmm. And if they can't be reached with conversation, what is there left but force, right? Trying to get the other, t- other side to submit, to just wield power in such a way that they have to. And that's, it's, hopelessness is a really, I mean, it's a really devastating force, I think, in society right now. Yeah. I just, I don't think they can be reached. It depends who you're talking about on Twitter. But the one reason why many people can't be reached on Twitter is because they're not actually communicating across any divide in a straightforward way. They're communicating to their echo chamber, their audience. Mm-hmm. And right. It's, it's more of a performance to, for their side. Yeah, yeah. They're appearing to communicate across the divide with somebody else. But it's just incentivizing dunks and mm-hmm. bad faith responses to you know, even good faith efforts to communicate. Mm-hmm. And, and when it comes to like the New York Times, I think they and many other people are realizing that Twitter is real life. Like it, it is, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who thinks, oh, just nothing that happens there is real or meaningful. I don't believe that, but I do believe like it's clearly not a representative sample of society in any real meaningful way, I think. Mm. So we can when i when i i don't completely ignore for instance like you know i i am looking at some you know the criticism that we 
and the show are getting on Twitter. I don't just dismiss it out of hand at all. Um, but I also take it with a grain of salt and recognize that even, you know, in the moments where there is an, a, a lot of really, you know, awful criticism and people who are saying exactly what I feared when I set out to do this, that I am exactly like I was at Westboro, that I've just changed from homophobia to transphobia and how, you know, just, just all kinds of things like that. I am also hearing many other things through many other avenues that help me have a much more balanced perspective. And I think places like the New York Times now are also recognizing that Twitter is, there are real people on Twitter with real ideas and real criticism, but they are not and should not represent all of society. Yeah. So have you heard anything in criticism of the series so far that has seemed uh, important for you to take on board that might make it in your epilogue or shines light on something that you now recognize you were you were genuinely missing about this story? Well, there are a lot of people who, I mean, and it's on both sides, actually, or all, I shouldn't say both sides, because it is, there are a, you know, a plethora of, of opinions. It's not just team trans versus team turf, as mm-hmm. maybe Dave Chappelle might put it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, they wanted, you know, much more about either detransitioners or, you know, more people who were critical of rolling or who see, there are many people who don't recognize the fact that this was not just all about trans issues. It's, it's much bigger than that. It's kind of trying to get at, you know, many more aspects of human nature. And as I said, these, these changes that have taken place in society over the past two or three decades and who see the fact that we have, you know, one episode devoted to trans critics of J.K. Rowling. They say, oh, this is completely, you know, unbalanced and unfair. I totally understand where all of these people are coming from. Again, there are many more many aspects of this conversation that we just could not cover. I can't even tell you the <laughs> amount of research and time we have spent diving into so many more aspects of this that just could not make it into the show. I interviewed, like I said, dozens of people, and I had never, I had never conducted an interview before I sat down with J.K. Rowling. And since then, it's just been this like major part of my life. So there's a lot of criticism about things that we haven't included. And I will just say again, we are not litigating these issues. We are trying to help people start conversations, good faith conversations, and to recognize that those conversations are valuable. It is not hopeless that we shouldn't despair of our fellow citizens and their intentions. Are there bad actors? Of course. Are there people with bad intentions and bad ideas? Of course. But I think what we are trying to show is that there are a lot of people who are interested, who are good faith and curious and who want to understand and who want to find a productive path forward. That's really what we're trying to do. But yeah, we absolutely will address some of that criticism in, in the epilogue in episode eight. Because yeah, I mean, Natalie Wynn, I thought you were going to mention this earlier, she actually disavowed the series before any of the episodes had even come out because of the title. The title mm. has gotten a lot of criticism, um, which, again, I completely understand. It it started out as this kind of very simplistic kind of play on words, right? You know, J.K. Rowling is famous for her, you know, books about witches and wizards, and she's been subject to these two vocal backlashes, the witch trials of J.K. Rowling. But yeah. we realized pretty quickly that, you know, it's, we we thought, oh my God, we we can't use this. Like, we have to change it. And then it became this like very interesting, it was very interesting to realize this dynamic where 
all sides use this language of witch hunting. Like they, they see the other side as being engaged in a moral panic. And so the, the title is actually a lot more ambiguous than, than I think many people recognize. And it's, it's the idea that is J.K. Rowling, is she the subject of a witch hunt or is she prosecuting one? And because, again, both sides use that language. Mm. And so, again, I, we, could we have picked a different title? For sure. Um, I want to acknowledge that, like, you know, we are listening to the criticism and we, and we want to hear it. So if you, if you have it, if you listen to the show and we even set up an email address for it, witchtrials at thefp.com. So if you listen to the series and you want to give us your feedback, we want to be responsive to that. So, yeah, just share it. Let us know when it's like I said, this is the beginning of a conversation and we, we want it to keep going. Well, I, I love the title. I didn't know Natalie had disavowed the series because I'm not on Twitter. So I, there's no way, no <laughs> way I would have seen that. But um, yeah, I think the title works quite well. And um, I look forward to the, the final installments in the series. Megan, thanks for being here. And uh, perhaps you can give your Twitter handle for anyone who wants to send you hate mail or, or praise on the basis <laughs> of this conversation. Yeah, it's uh, at Megan Phelps, M-E-G-A-N. P-H-E-L-P-S. Nice. I welcome all of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, best of luck with the rest of the series, and, um, and thanks again for everything you're doing, you, both over there and uh, over here on the Essential series, because uh, we need more of your voice, whether it's truly what you're thinking or you're just reading someone else's thoughts. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's fantastic radio. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you, thank you. 